Welcome to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have open and honest conversations about co-parenting, separation, divorce, and the hardest question of all, should you stay or should you go? I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, and I'm here to help you navigate some of the roughest waters you've ever swum in and answer some of your toughest questions. I've been to hell and back, and now it's my mission in life to help you get to the other side of this process with your sanity and your heart intact. Hey everyone, welcome back. So today is a solo episode. I haven't done one of these in a while, but it's more than a solo episode. It's actually the official launch of the pre-sale push (laughs) for my book. So as you all know, the D word, making the ultimate decision about your marriage comes out December 26th. And as I told you last week, I am doing a reading from the book this week. I also want to talk to you a little bit about some of um, the bonuses that you get. So with the pre-orders, you can sign up on my website. I'll tell you all about it and how to do it. And you submit like how many copies of the book you bought. And if you bought one copy, there are special bonuses available to you. If you bought two copies, there are other bonuses available to you. And if you bought 10 or more, God love you. Um, there are other bonuses available. Now, um, really the people who are going to be buying 10 or more copies, hopefully, um, will be people that are in the divorce industry, people like divorce attorneys and therapists. And if you are among my audience right now, if anyone who is a professional who has people coming to them, you know, with attorneys, people come before they've made the decision, they're still trying to decide, right? As I recommend in my work, like if you're if you're trying to decide, like go to an attorney, find out what your rights are. Let's like get the ball rolling in terms of just, you need to know certain things before you can make this decision, right? So I would love it for professionals who are in that position to have a stack of these books in their offices because if you're not tr- a trained professional in this exact thing, you can hand them a book and then you will forever be remembered as the person who gave this client the book that helped them make the ultimate decision. (laughs) That's my plug. But so I have these bonus structures. And again, all of this is on my website at kateanthony.com slash D word. And that's one word D word. But the bonus structure I will tell you about now. So if you pre-order one copy, you get a sneak peek at the introduction of the D word. So I will send you a PDF of the introduction so you can basically start reading right away. And then extra bonus for you, I'm reading uh, chapter three to you today. So (laughs) you're getting a a good chunk of the book in advance. If you pre-order one copy, you also get my all new revised new and improved inner guide meditation, as well as a second meditation that will help you revisit your inner guide. I have clients that do this daily. So it's a really great 
guided meditation. So two guided meditations. You'll also get the D Word workbook and all of the other resources that are associated with the D Word that come with the book. So it's a pretty sweet deal. You get one copy and you get all this other stuff, all this other great stuff too. Now, if you order two copies, one for you and one for your best friend who's been complaining to you for uh, eons about her marriage, (laughs) um, you get all of that, right? The introduction, the inner guide, the revisit your inner guide, the workbook, all of the resources. You also get access to my 90-minute workshop, Tackling Codependence. And $50 off of my online program, Should I Stay or Should I Go? Now, if you pre-order 10 copies, you get all of that, (laughs) all the way down to tackling codependence. And then you get a 60-minute call with me that you can use however you see fit. So if you buy 10 copies of this book, you get basically a free coaching call with me. You can have it be for you if you need it. You can give it to a client if you want to give it away to someone in your group. Um, you can also have me come and do a private Q&A session with your group if that's appropriate. You also get $200 off of should I stay or should I go? And you can, again, use it for yourself or gift it to somebody in your group. Um, one of your clients, whatever it is. The the program is regularly priced at $497, so $200 off. It's almost half off. So. Um, so those are the bonuses. I also have the D-Word Fund. There were some women in my Facebook group who were like, you know, I'm already on the other side, but this work helped me so much. I would love to gift a copy of the book to somebody in need. And so I figured the best way to do that was to create a fund. And so it's on my website. It's a PayPal thing. So you have to kind of go to it through my website again. Um, that's going to be on all the book pages, but katieanthony.com slash D word. You can contribute to the, to the D word fund. Um, $18 will buy one book for somebody and you can donate as much as you want to that fund. And then later on, when we have, you know, a good collection in the fund, we will, uh, be accepting, I don't know if we're going to do applications or just requests, um, for the book. So we'll figure that out next. But, um, if you would like to contribute to that fund, it would be awesome. All right. So I think that's all I have to tell you right now about what's happening with the book and the bonuses and all the fun stuff. We're also going to have a bunch of virtual events and I will keep you posted on those and there'll be, you know, readings and Q and A's and things like that. Um, I may or may not be coming to your town doing a book tour I think more than likely we may just do virtual events so that everybody can come from all over. Uh, I think that might serve my community better. But again, all of this is still in the works and in conversation, and we are considering all options. So, all right, listen, here we go. I'm going to read to you. (laughs) Story time. It's story time, everybody. This is from The D Word, making the ultimate decision about your marriage by me. 
(laughs) And I'm going to read you some of chapter three. Chapter three is called Why Are Women So Unhappy in Their Marriages? How Marriage Exhausts Women and Benefits Men. I hear time and again, he's a good guy. I just don't feel it anymore. Or he's a good guy. He just has anger issues. Or he's fine. Why can't I just be happy? When I dig more deeply into these relationships, there's almost always more going on than meets the eye. Often, he's really not a good guy after all. In fact, many of these men are actually abusive. Sometimes he is a good guy, but a victim as we all are of a system that prioritizes men over women financially, emotionally, and in labor. And as a result, he prioritizes his own needs, time, or money over his partner's. He may not mean to do so, but internalized patriarchy is real, and as such, many men who truly feel that they love and respect their wives may still unintentionally treat them with less respect than they deserve. In this chapter, I address some of the systemic issues that impact marriages, much of which are more obvious in cis-hetero relationships. Because of this, I've used more gendered language here. However, because of the systemic nature of these issues, they're not unique to heterosexual relationships, and I've seen them play out in the marriages of lesbians I've worked with as well. Merriam-Webster defines patriarchy as social organization marked by the supremacy of the father in the clan or family, the legal dependence of wives and children, and the reckoning of descent and inheritance in the male line. Control by men of a disproportionately large share of power and a society or institution organized according to the principles or practices of patriarchy. So in other words, patriarchy is a society in which men control a disproportionate amount of power and in which wives and children are legally dependent upon such men. The United States was built on the foundation of patriarchy, slavery, and genocide. How else could cisgender, heterosexual white men build and maintain all that power and control were it not for the unpaid labor of women and people of color? When I talk about systemic issues of power and control, this is exactly what I mean. To my mind, we can't talk about marriage today without discussing patriarchy and white supremacy. How did we get here? Up until the mid-20th century, marriages were, essentially, business arrangements, and in many cultures, they still are. Families merged to increase uh, power and land holdings. If you ended up with an affinity for your spouse, that was a bonus, but it certainly wasn't the premise for the union, and women had almost no choice in the matter whatsoever. Families had children, not because of a biological yearning, but because more hands were needed to support the family business, care for elders, or to carry on the patriarchal lineage. From what we understand, women's relationships with men were mostly for procreation, protection, and food. Women got their emotional and spiritual needs met by other women. They raised children in community with one another and engaged in powerful rituals like the red tent in which women would come together around their menstrual cycles to celebrate and nurture one another. In Western culture, single-family homes, while seen as early as the 15th and 16th centuries, really began to boom with the advent and proliferation of the automobile in the early 20th century. With cars came greater freedom to commute, and housing spread into more rural areas, which led to greater and greater space between us. 
Women left their family homes, found partners, and moved into these new single-family dwellings with white picket fences and all the trappings of modern society, and all that we once got from multiple sources, spiritually, psychologically, physically, emotionally, suddenly landed squarely on one person, our spouse. However, biologically speaking, men are not wired to fill this support role. Studies have shown that women and men release different hormones under stress. Women release oxytocin, the bonding hormone that we also release during orgasm and breastfeeding, while men release testosterone. Women's instinct to bond during times of stress biologically conflicts with men's more aggressive, problem-solving approach. This is why women are so compelled to turn to other women in times of trouble and often see their husbands as little or no comfort. It's also why women feel that men don't understand them or aren't there for them when they need them, and why men sometimes look at us like we're aliens with three heads when we tell them that we don't want them to solve our problems, we just need them to listen. For all our advances, the one thing that we have lost, and that women instinctively crave, is coming together in ritual, sharing the burden of motherhood and womanhood itself. This is why we start book clubs and rarely read or talk about the books. It was never about the books. It was always about the gathering. It's also why, if you ask any woman, she'll jump at the idea of living in a community of other women. This isn't simply because we want to share community and support with other women. It's because we viscerally understand that the patriarchy has its very roots in our oppression. We've come to understand that white picket fences are not the symbol of cultural achievement we were taught they were, but rather are jail bars, tools that keep us isolated, imprisoned, and compliant. If we can't overthrow the patriarchy, we can fantasize about creating a sub, indeed counter, matriarchal culture, even if it's just on a plot of land, a row of tiny houses, or a big house we all run together. When her husband, John Adams, one of the founding fathers of the United States, went off to write the Constitution, his wife Abigail implored him to, quote, Remember the ladies, and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. Remember all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. End quote. If only he'd listened. While the 1950s are often touted as an idyllic time in our history, you have only to watch a few early episodes of Mad Men to know that underneath the poodle skirts, coiffed hair, and sheets of perfectly baked cookies, women were suffering from a loneliness and isolation that caused us to rise up in fierce rebellion by the late 1960s. We became tired of being forced to stay home and keep house. We became tired of being objectified. We wanted equality, autonomy, and choice. In 1973, after a bitter fight and millions of deaths, women's, women were given choice over their bodily autonomy when the Supreme Court heard and upheld Roe v. Wade. In 1974, a woman was finally able to get a credit card in her own name without her husband's signature. 
It wasn't until 1994 that Bill Clinton signed the Violence Against Women's Act, which provided funding for programs that help victims of domestic violence, rape and sexual assault, stalking, and other gender-related violence. Unfortunately, and as proven by Jim Crow, just because certain freedoms are signed into law or even ratified into the Constitution, it doesn't mean society won't find other ways to continue its oppression. The Equal Rights Amendment, first proposed in 1923, has yet to be ratified into the U.S. Constitution, and in June of 2022, a woman's right to choose was upended when the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. No, we haven't come a long way, baby. Not your fucking job. When I interviewed Leslie Bennett's author of The Feminine Mistake, Are We Giving Up Too Much, for my podcast, she told me that in researching her book, she learned that of the four heterosexual population groups, married women, married men, single women, single men, the happiest population group is married men. The next happy is single women, then single men. The least happy population group, married women. This may be a big old no shit Sherlock to those of you reading this book or listening to this podcast, and you may feel like your life is a walking case study proving it. Almost any heterosexual woman who's been married inherently knows that marriage serves men while depleting women even those in happy marriages. In fact, Leslie also said on my podcast that married women do 90% of the giving and men do 90% of the taking. While that number may not be statistically true, most married heterosexual women sure feel like it is. But why is this? The short answer is male entitlement. The longer answer is, of course, about the systemic structures that are set up to keep women exhausted, overwhelmed, and broke while supporting male advancement, achievement, and leisure. Of course men are entitled. The entire system tells them that they should be. Let's begin with the gender pay gap. In 2021, full-time working women earned 84% of what their male counterparts made, up from 73% in 2014. Slow clap. These numbers are far worse for Black women who only earn 63% and Latina women who earn just 57% of what white men make. This means that on average, women earn 84 cents for every dollar earned by a man and Black women earn 63 cents for every dollar earned by a white man and Latina women earn 57 cents for every dollar a white man earns. Add that gap up over a lifetime, and the difference ends up in the millions. And what about the unpaid work that American women do? Raising the children, keeping house, managing budgets and medical care, and everything else. As MarketWatch declared in their April 15th, 2018 headline, Women's unpaid work is the backbone of the American economy. The 40-hour work week was designed by and for men who had wives at home to take care of all the domestic labor. But when women entered the workforce, men didn't pick up their fair share of the domestic labor to make it possible. Women just had to work two jobs, one at the office and one at home, often called the second shift. 
Over time, we've raised enough hell over this that more men than ever before are stepping up to the plate at home. But even those who think that they do equal domestic labor have been proven wrong in scientific studies. A Pew Research study done in 2015 proved that, despite the fact that fathers said that they shared home and child responsibilities equally, moms actually did significantly more. In fact, after having one child, a woman's total work, including domestic and paid work outside the home, increased by 21 hours per week, while men's total work increased by only 12.5 hours. Oh, and men tend to enjoy three more hours of leisure time per week than women do. A study done by the New York Times in March of 2020 concluded that if American women earned minimum wage for the unpaid work they do around the house and caring for relatives, they would have made $1.5 trillion last year. Now, in March of 2020, the federal minimum wage was $7.25 and had been since 2009. Keep in mind that this study was concluded before the pandemic, during which women lost an estimated 5.4 million jobs, many of which they were forced to leave in order to care for their homebound children, while their usually male co-parents continued to work unabated. We earn less while working the same jobs and do more in the house. Add a global pandemic and we lose our jobs and increase domestic labor kind of like the 1950s. Awesome. Is it any wonder that married women are the least happy population group? 69% of heterosexual divorces are initiated by women, and men are often blindsided when their wives file for divorce. They don't take their wives seriously when they beg them to step up to in the house, to do more domestic labor, to go to therapy with them, because they can't understand what the problem is. After all, the issues women have in their marriages are the very things that make married men so happy. Women's unpaid labor falls into four distinct categories. One, the mental load. This is all the stuff that swirls around in women's heads, taking up a ton of mental energy. The to-do lists, the shopping lists, the list of school supplies and when they're needed, the dog's veterinary appointments, when each kid is due at the dentist, etc. Carrying the mental load can be so taxing that it can cause anxiety and stress to the point that it causes us to become forgetful in other areas. After all, we can really only hold so much. Two, emotional labor. This is all the emotional work we do to keep our relationships intact. It's when we play therapist to our husbands because they won't call the actual therapist. When we remind our husbands to call their parents. When we're the only one who can sue the boo-boo. When we're the only ones who can read the relationship books and listen to the podcasts when things are on the fritz. Sometimes carrying the emotional labor of the family can make us feel like we do all the output with very little input and can leave us emotionally drained and resentful. Three, the second shift. This is all the household labor you have to do before or after your actual shift at work, prepping lunches, doing homework, bath time, grocery shopping. We all have a second shift in our lives because that's adulting. The problem is when we have no support in our second shift, especially when there are kids involved and the person who's supposed to be sharing the load is busy playing video games or golf. 
Four, invisible labor. This is all the stuff no one sees, but that magically happens behind the scenes. Lunchboxes are magically filled each morning. The milk and toilet paper never run out, that kind of thing. When it comes to domestic labor, men, generally speaking, fall into three broad categories. One, unicorns, those who actually do half of the domestic labor and whose wives feel that there is an equal balance between the two. Two, oblivious enthusiasts, those who really think they're doing their fair share in the home and genuinely want to, but whose wives will confirm that they are in fact not. These men often identify as feminists and are eager to affect change. Passive accommodators, those who think that if their wives really needed help, they just ask. They want us to make them to-do lists, and then they'll do whatever we want them to do. Entitled misogynists. Those who believe women belong in the home and in the kitchen, regardless of what other work they're also doing and whether or not they themselves have an actual job. My ex-husband was a unicorn. Despite the fact that he worked outside the home and I was a stay-at-home mom, we shared domestic chores fairly evenly. Yes, I shopped and I did the laundry and handled all the scheduling, but he cooked often and whoever cooked was usually the one to do bath and bedtime with our son while the other cleaned up the kitchen. These chores rotated fairly evenly. So clearly being married to a unicorn doesn't solve all marital problems. New York Times bestselling author Eve Rodsky's book, Fair Play, and its accompanying card deck, seeks to solve the issue of the oblivious enthusiast by outlining every single piece of domestic labor required to run a household and asking each partner to take ownership of exactly half. In the documentary of the same name, after going through the process, one dad declares, I really didn't understand the amount that she had to endure. See? Oblivious. Rodsky argues that when men take on their share of domestic labor and they experience ownership in the domestic space, they have the opportunity to connect more deeply with their children and feel like active participants in their family life. These men feel empowered. Intimacy with their wives increases because their wives are not utterly exhausted, overwhelmed, and resentful. Marriage to an oblivious enthusiast can improve dramatically with the opening up of dialogue and with him taking the lead in doing some research. But do we really need a card game to teach men how to do their fair share? And it's not like men, even oblivious enthusiasts, are running out to buy the books or games because they don't even see the problem. So yet again, it's one more thing that women need to do. Feminist writer Zahn Velines said in a February 19th, 2023 Facebook post, men are not dumb or incompetent. They can see when their partners are working. They can observe that the family needs food to survive and that someone needs to procure that food from the grocery store. Don't let society tell you this is complicated and requires even more work from you to fix. Velines argues that we support the idea that men don't know how to participate in domestic labor by asking women to take on the additional labor of teaching them what needs to be done and how. She goes on to say, endless articles suggest that if we just ask for it in the right way or offer the right incentive or use the right combination of words or spend enough time learning about our partners to understand their motives, everything can change all of which adds up to emotional labor of women in our quest to reduce our domestic load. 
Then there's the passive accommodator. He thinks that if his wife really needed his help, she'd just ask. The word help implies that domestic labor is a woman's job and men are merely our assistants. This mentality and language are rampant among men and women. I implore you to watch your use of the word help. Do you ask your husband to help with dinner or putting the kids to bed? Do you ask for help taking the kids to school? Notice how often you use it in your household and try to stop. Remember, you're modeling something to your kids here. What do you want it to be? In her viral cartoon, You Should Have Asked, cartoonist Emma writes, When a man expects his partner to ask him to do things, he's viewing her as the manager of household chores. So it's up to her to know what needs to be done and when. The problem with that is that planning and organizing things is already a full-time job. Realize that it's not your fucking job to tell a grown-ass human being that the laundry needs to be done, or that dinner needs to be made, or that the kids need a bath, or that you're out of toothpaste. There is no genetic predisposition that makes women better at remembering all the stuff that needs to get done to run a house than men. People used to believe that women were better multitaskers than men, but it turns out that we're only better at it because we do it more. Our brains aren't naturally wired for this. We have more neural pathways developed around multitasking because we've been left to do so much of it. Chicken, meat, egg. The passive accommodator will also employ a sneaky little trick called weaponized incompetence or feigned incompetence in which they pretend that they don't know how to do basic life stuff in order to get out of doing it. Case in point, the bumbling dad of commercials, TV shows, and movies. You should have asked as a form of weaponized incompetence in which someone pretends that they don't know how to how something works, so you have to teach them. Hi, emotional labor. Or better yet, they get away with not doing it because they simply don't know how. Women have to be careful about enabling weaponized incompetence. When our partners do a chore and they don't do it to our liking, we need to not swoop in and chastise them for doing it wrong and then do it the way we want it done. This solidifies their feelings of incompetence and guarantees that they'll never do said chore again, which is often the goal. We must give other adults the dignity of doing things themselves their way. It doesn't need to be done perfectly. It just needs to be done. And the only way we get things taken off of our plates is by allowing them to be on someone else's. By the way, this goes for your kids too. When teaching children how to do chores, allow them to do them their own way and imperfectly. This is how boys in particular learn not to become passive accommodators later in life. When Ruth Bader Ginsburg was founding the ACLU Women's Rights Project while also teaching at Columbia University while also litigating cases all over the country and in front of the Supreme Court before becoming a Supreme Court justice herself, while also raising two kids, she famously told her son's school, who called her often due to her son's hyperactivity, this child has two parents. Please alternate calls for conferences. Interestingly enough, after this conversation, the calls slowed down and only came about once a semester. Justice Ginsburg concluded that the school began to think harder about calling a parent when they knew they had to interrupt a man's work rather than a woman's. As for the entitled misogynist, well, 
If you're married to a misogynist and you're wondering if you should stay or go, all I'd ask you to do is look back to your values and ask yourself if this is in alignment with who you are at your core, and if this is the domestic dynamic you want to model for your kids. Even if you've agreed to be a stay-at-home mom, domestic labor isn't a 9-to-5 job. A partner who goes to work 9-to-5 comes home and sits on the couch playing video games and doesn't participate in the house or with the children after they're done with work while you run around cooking, cleaning, and taking care of the children after having done so all day long is at best oblivious and at worst entitled. So what is the solution to all of this? We must be willing to communicate in our marriages because standing in the corner with steam coming out of our ears never solved anything. So have the conversation, but have it once and have it in detail. Tell your partner you're dissatisfied and exhausted and that even coming up with a solution to this issue puts more on your plate. Then ask them to come up with ways to solve the problem. Ask your partner what they suggest to minimize your load, and then see what they do. And every time they ask you for, quote, help, say, I'm sure you can figure it out. Rinse and repeat. I'm sure you can figure it out. Eventually they will, but only if you stop doing more than your share. There's a whole host of things I've seen women do and that I did in my marriage that are really not our jobs. The only way we get men to step up to the plate and do their fair share is by not doing all the things that are simply not your fucking job. Here's a list of other things that are not your job and that will help alleviate some of the labor on your plate. It's not your fucking job to coordinate his meals and snacks so he doesn't get hangry to single-handedly bring passion to your relationship, to pack for him when he goes on trips, to shop and cook before you go out of town for the weekend, to create a to-do list for him, to force him to go to therapy, to be his therapist, to satisfy him sexually with no reciprocation, to be his Madonna and his whore, to remind him to take his meds, to be attractive enough to keep him from straying, to dye your hair, get a boob job, cut your hair, lose weight, gain weight, exercise, etc., in order to be enough for him. It's not your fucking job to be his mother, to bend yourself into pretzels to try to fill his void, to keep his schedule, to heal his trauma, to prove your worth, to remind him to attend parent-teacher conferences, to help him maintain relationships with his parents, siblings, children, and friends. It's not your fucking job to wake him up in the morning so that he gets to work on time. It's not your fucking job to put his happiness and comfort above your own. It's not your fucking job to heal his addictions, to force him to be an equal partner in your marriage, to soothe his anxiety, to change, to avoid conflict, to keep quiet so you don't rock the boat. It's not your fucking job to have sex you don't want to have. Add your own. So at the end of that chapter, I have a bunch of lines for you to add your own list of things that are not your fucking job. So my loves, I hope you enjoyed that chapter three of the D word, making the ultimate decision about your marriage. And I really hope that it inspires you 
that it inspires you to to buy the book <laughs> first and foremost. But I also, you know, that's a gift for you. You know, this book is dedicated to my son, obviously, but it is also dedicated to women everywhere. It's dedicated to you because you, my love, deserve to be happy. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. If you like what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in and leave me a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at The Divorce Survival Guide. I'll see you next time. And until then, remember, you, my love, deserve to be happy.